All right, y'all. So everyone knows that child care is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine tune your skills and grow more in depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCAST 25, 30 minute segments are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, <laughs> heck, even agree with us. But honestly, remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good, let's get it. All right, y'all, welcome back. Welcome to NAPCAST, a podcast produced by Hilltop Children's Center in Seattle, Washington, on the traditional lands of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish tribe. Man, it's good to be back. The FCC hasn't kicked us off the airways yet. So, you know, we doing something, right? Or maybe they just not listening. Who knows? Anyways, this is episode three. We're going to call this La Revolution, not to be confused with um, Yesenia Yandel album title of Back in the Day, man. Great album. Great album. But anyway, same concept. Today, we're going to focus on social activism within young children. And, um, but, you know, kicking it off, who am I? My name is Mike Brown. As always, pronouns are he and him. Hey, Mike, and I'm Nick Taronis. Pronouns are he, him. And you know what? This is one of my favorite topics. Working with toddlers, you see it every day in their little nuanced ways, especially as they grow and make new observations about the world around them. So I'm very excited to dive deeper into it and hopefully help listeners figure out ways that we can build the resiliency, the leadership, the foundations of critical thinking, and the fire under children's bellies to be able to lead a revolution and fundamentally change the way that we govern, lead, and live in community with one another. Sounds pretty radical, yeah? Mm. (laughs) Well, especially considering that we're talking about young children, education and learning should be. So let's jump right into it, Mike. Hey, no doubt right on. But before I pick your brain on ways to instill social activist values in children, do me a favor and set the stage for us on a developmental perspective. What are children noticing, feeling, understanding when it comes to justice? Well, Mike, I like you know I like to definitely put some context to it. So let's start with child brains first. And from what I've learned, by the time a human is five to six months old, really young. They can distinguish races equally, and by the time they're nine months old, they can recognize their own race more quickly than other races. And all the meanwhile, between these ages, their brains are making connections with how the sounds and physical reactions they're adults in their lives to the stimuli, stimuli that they're exposed to. And so one could say at a very young age, children are already synthesizing how to react to people that are different from from them based on their adults' reactions. Mm-hmm. And so fast forward a couple years to a few years, children have quite a skill set of observation, verbalization, and processing to begin to fully participate in the world around them. And uh, developmentally, young children are in, the, in that stage of egocentrism that we touched on before, where their thoughts are generally surrounded about themselves only. And 
yet their life is in this weird push-pull where they want to be in relationship with peers. And at a very young age, we start seeing a child's sense of self emerge in relation to their peers, the sort of beginnings of empathy. And just getting to your question, uh, at first, justice is about them. What does it feel like when something is taken away from them, when someone pushes them down or when they're yelled at or called a name? And then, you know, hopefully they begin to see what it's like when someone with a bit more skills advocates for them. They see and feel that power of advocacy. That power of advocacy, again, hopefully, is when is then used to help others. And they see what it means for them to, to wield that power. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot like other skill sets that we develop in children's learning. Math, for example, you learn to add and subtract and divide, multiply, word problems, fractions, algebra, geometry, and so on. What is that called? PEMDAS? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, order of operations. Yeah. <laughs> Good, you remembered that. <laughs> um, and, you know, I may not have the order of all that right, but the principle is that with, the founda- with these foundational concepts, the application gets more nuanced and more trickier. And so we can kind of think about that with advocacy. It starts off with like a child saying, no, that's, that's mine, or I'm using that, or I don't like that, to then hopefully being like, hey, this doesn't feel fair. I'm going to stick up for my friend, and so, and, you know, and so forth. Great. So now that we know that children are the world's greatest detectives, heck, they could probably find Carmen Sandiego, which I'm still not sure if we ever did find her. There's just so many unanswered questions from my childhood, but I digress. Now that we have this baseline knowledge that children have a knack for justice, do we just tell them about like environmental justice, climate change? In which ways can I boil this down to make sure what the children are learning is meaningful, it's relevant to them, and it's something they can apply to real-world contexts? Yeah. And and in you said one of the key words there, which is being relevant and relevancy. And we'll kind of just use that um, that example of environmental justice, which is something you know I think pretty pretty out there. And it, it really pulls away from the child's self, mm-hmm. but it really doesn't. Also, and environmental justice, like with most justices, in my opinion begins with establishing a relationship with a particular environment or a thing or a person. And from this, I believe empathy can grow and a sense of belonging and responsibility to the thing that you're developing empathy with. And it's, uh, it's interesting as you know, we're recording this, we're, we're in, it's May already, which is (laughs) so weird. Um, and this is something that comes up all the time around this, uh, around these spring and summer seasons. We're outside a lot with the children, which means sometimes we'll eat snack outside. and Sometimes we have non-biodegradable trash. And when this comes up, we tell we simply tell ch- children, hey, this is trash that is not good for the outside. Here's where you can throw it away. And we'll have a little container for the trash to go in. And, and then we'll kind of emphasize if this trash, this pa- paper or plastic bits go flying around the outside, a duck or a squirrel, or some other living creature might think it's food, try to eat it, and choke on it. It might hurt them or make them really sick. Or we might say it'll make them dead. 
And also in the past, we've talked about what food trash might be acceptable. Apple peels, sunflower seed shells, bread crusts. These are things that are acceptable for the, uh, the creatures outside. And that we, I try to tell the kids that the earth will take it back. We'll kind of eat the, that trash. And that's kind of what um, biodegrading is. We also want to make sure that we're not always leaving these out. And that's where, you know, we adults can kind of model a sense of balance. And even though there's this like sort of push pull of like, what are we, what information are we giving the kids? They, they do understand and they, they learn, you know, what the, the sort of balance of these things and what is acceptable and what's not. And if they don't, they generally ask. And, um, this also comes up when the daisies and daffodils are sprouting or when we see those little red berries popping out on a bush and or we come across birch trees that has bark that peels off. With all these natural materials, children know that they can be, you know, they're just naturally inclined to just pluck them and peel them off and kind of discard them off to the side. And this is where we adults can come in and, and balance um, a sense of concert, uh, help them model a balance and conservationism by saying, well, you know, if we take too much, there won't be any more for the next group to try to use. Or when you come back, there won't be enough to use again. We need to help let these things grow. So only take what you need. And then we'll kind of prompt the child to uh, work out a plan to, of what they're going to use with the material. And sometimes that's just like, oh, I'm going to give these daisies to my family. Or, hey, let's take this birch mark and let's go color on it. And then we'll say, hey, you know what? These berries that you're picking off, the birds need to eat those, or the squirrels that we think we eat, uh, eat those. And if we take too many, they may not have enough food. And so, yeah, we kind of just frame it around things that are familiar to them, like having something to eat, you know, and, and really, again, using that idea of egocentrism as, as their strength. You know, hey, you may not have more flowers to pick from if you pick them all now. <laughs> All right. So we're, we're in the state of Washington. And so I want to take it a step further. So let's keep on the theme with environmental justice. Mm-hmm. And but let's let's role play. Let's pretend actually we're not in the state of Washington where we are environmentally focused. So we know and hopefully we educating some people out there that it's a proven fact that lower class and those suffering from anything like income instability, um, which we know is predominantly BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous, people of color, uh, are the ones that are suffering greatly from climate change. And we're talking about it on a socially, economically, culturally, um, politically, and institutional level. So as a center that engages in play-based learning, how would you in- introduce this topic into the classroom, like when you're not in nature, or for example, um, what other provocations would you introduce to extend the ideas of the children? What other supports would you bring in to move from talking about it to theory to making, I guess, that learning visible, to make that learning tangible? Yeah. And yeah, and again, relevance is key here and and, and really bringing it to what the children are familiar with, especially for toddlers and young preschoolers. Uh, and again, like I said at the beginning of this, like they, they're they keen observers and they'll have ideas when you ask them, hey, where, where do you see trash when you're outside? You know, they'll, they'll be able to point it out. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, for our particular setting, we're, we're situated by the ship canal and, and it's a nice place to walk on. There's grass to run on, there's picnic tables at, and naturally in this, you know, like most parks invites humans to be inconsiderate and usually leave their trash laying about. And this happens everywhere, whether it's on the sidewalk or it's everywhere kids go, this idea of litter. And naturally, many of us adults can't help but share out loud our disappointment <laughs> at seeing this. And we had um, one educator several years back, and he called the city to see what could be done. Because a couple of his kids had been saying, why is there so much trash on the canal? Or they would try to pick it up and bring it to the trash can. And, you know, we don't we don't want them to necessarily pick up the trash with their bare hands. And so, yeah, he called the city and he was... He put it to his class. I was like, what should we do about this? Fortunately, you know, here, like you called out, um, the state of Washington's pretty environmentally focused. And there's a program that provided these long, long arm grabby things that you can pick <laughs> up trash and you don't have to touch it with your bare hands. There was safety vests and gloves that they gave and, and even trash bags that they would come pick up. Mm. And after he and his class went around the canal picking up litter, they decided to make Science, you know, because he he put it to the kids like, how do we make sure nobody's going to put trash on, on, keep putting trash out? And so the kids made these, you know, signs in their scrawled out handwriting and, and crayons and markers said, no more litter, put your trash in the garbage can. You know, all these <laughs> these sort of common sense things. Um, and again, this was like an example of empowering children with a sense of advocacy, letting them know that they have a voice and that they can do these tangible things that helps them realize that they wield a power of responsibility and can help adults stay accountable. And these, these kids were about three to five years old. And see what, what I like and really appreciate about that example is that it's combining so many different forms of activism, right? Mm -hmm. So it's showing the kids that you can pick up the phone and call your local representatives. It's showing the kids that, you know, you can actually roll up your sleeves and help out. You can go on marches. Um, I'm sure, you know, that that particular educator in their class, they read books and did activities together. So it's so cool to see children being empowered to come up with actual solutions themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then promote it to the community as large. But, okay, so that, that was three to five years old. Three, three to five years old. Yeah. Um, what about a younger age group, toddlers? Like, do you have a story to share about advocacy um, or empowerment with this age group? And let's stay away from race, right? Mm -hmm. um, since most social activism is just solely focused on race, and rightfully so, you know, we have an ugly history and current reality when it comes to race relations in the United States. Yeah, and and I yeah, I do want to point out that like yeah, for toddlers. It's, I like to think of it as really just sort of opening the door to conversations, letting them know that they have these deep capacities for thinking and to have ideas and that conversations about these, these things that tap into our ugly histories and the inequalities and inequities that are in the United States, that that they are invited into these conversations as well. And so a lot of it is just sort of the first steps of like an introductory mm -hmm. course, I guess, if you will. And yeah. 
so for my toddler classroom, there was this one time we uh, we took a trip to um, the Seattle Center, mm-hmm. a local tourist trap. I don't know if you've been there yet. Oh, man, many first dates there. Yeah. Great people watching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a great, you know, the big, it's a great place to run around in that big grass field. Yeah. And this was during the summertime. Um, and while we were all running around and climbing park benches and a couple of my uh, toddler children noticed two people sleeping on separate benches nearby. To the adult eye, one could suspect with some accuracy that they were homeless. Mm. Uh, and so the two children had been climbing on all the other benches, just get climbing up the backs of them, crossing them like balance beams, and then jumping off onto the grass and, and just doing this repetitively mm-hmm. like they might uh, their couches at home or something. <laughs> um, and they somehow managed to get on part of the bench um, that the people were sleeping on and, and keep jumping off of it and kind of moving on to different benches. But the whole time as I was watching there, watching them, I could see their faces looking at these people, observing, calculating, and thinking about who was on the bench while their play propelled them to keep going. Now, naturally, like my instinctive protective side wanted me to intervene and be like, hey, uh, you know, get away from there. Mm. But then I also remembered that my response to these things without any explanation or whatever might uh, give them a negative sense of whatever they're experiencing. Maybe a negative sense about people sleeping on benches. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at that very moment, I I, I just kind of allowed them to do it and, and not, and I didn't deep in my soul. I was like, okay, do not make this a not this not so scary situation to all of a sudden be scary. And really, they're, they're, this moment only happened like 15 to 20 seconds, just like many of the uh, significant learning moments toddlers have. And like what I would, I, I would have definitely jumped in, you know, um, at first. So it's nice to hear that you're you're allowing them to have um, that long extended period of play. And, and also is showing that you have so much trust in these children and their thoughts, their values, what they know, their sense of, of self. So what is that, like a high, real high trust model? And mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that. You know, valuable valuable lesson learned right there. Um, so is that the end of the story? You just like back, backed up and went home? <laughs> like you never talked about it again? Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> and like I said, it's like um, even in that moment is sort of in my not doing anything. There's this old, uh, I used to practice Kung Fu and one of the, Kung Fu saying the Wu Wei, which is the idea of action without action. And so mm. I had action in that moment without doing anything because, mm. you know, it, it allowed the children to just have that experience. And that same day, as we sat down on the grass to eat our picnic lunch, just asked the kids in general who were around me. And those two, two toddlers were near me. And I said, what did you guys notice today? You know, at the, uh, when you were playing in the grass. And one of them just piped up and said, well, someone was sleeping, maybe taking a nap like me at school. <laughs> and the other child agreed. And as he was like eating his lunch, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, and then he also said, yeah, I sleep like that on my couch. I have some holes in my pants too. And he's looking down at his pants who actually did have holes in them. <laughs> and he's like, they have a bed? And just this, you know, furrowed brow, little toddler, like wondering, do they have a bed? Because mm. again, they're kind of, making sense like 
what does this person have and what do I have? How is it, you know, what are the similarities and, and whatnot? And I hadn't expect that. I hadn't expect for this, uh, this little toddler to task very curiously. They have a bed, but it's an example of how observant they are and, and, and the, the, that they're making meaning of all these sorts of experiences. And I just kind of casually talked about how I didn't know if those people had a bed, that they could be something called homeless, which meant they didn't have a house like them. Um, and that they kind of, they, they might've lived somewhere else and maybe they sometimes sleep outside or sometimes they shared a house with people like the sort of, uh, taking the idea of a shelter and making that sort of make sense for them. Mm. Um, and about a week later in the classroom, I began to notice that these two children were building benches out of our big wooden unit blocks and they were sleeping on them in their pretend play. And sometimes they would build homes and invite their friends to come be in them. So this, uh, prompt, you know, and again, like I would, uh, whenever you see a child, like in play that intrigues you, like I always try to think and, and what, and then what, you know, how can I keep, how can I keep extending this particular play? Um, or how can I help them add on to it? And so this particular instance helped, uh, prompted me to start hanging up pictures of different kinds of residencies from around the world. Mm. Um, but making sure that I also represented what was relevant to our community, which was tents, um, yeah. um, cardboard boxes. And as the time went on, we casually discussed these different kinds of domiciles and, and talked about where they were in the world and who might be the people who lived in them, if there were children that lived with them. And that, you know, it's a stark reality that sometimes children don't have homes as well. Did you call it domiciles to them? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, I do believe I did it was a few years ago, but I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't be surprised if I did because, you know, we'll talk about all kinds of big words like that. <laughs> Good memory. All right. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we would talk about how certain homes were the same or different from theirs. Uh, and again, this was just all casual with me finding ways to keep them thinking about the relation to their, to their observations and then to their personal lives. All right. So you, you have this certain standard that, that you bring with you into the classroom and combos with me, um, with the children and you hold yourself and others accountable in that. And, and I so appreciate it. You're keeping it a hundred, you're keeping it real. Um, it's you. So it's just one of those many characteristics and traits you intentionally focus on. So, like, is there just one that you place above the others, so to speak, to help build children's social activists and, and justice lens? Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I guess, like, the, the word critical thinking comes mm -hmm. to mind. Mm -hmm. And with that, you know, I believe critical thinking is just kind of really embracing your two-and-a-half to three-year-old level and just always asking why, yeah. why, 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 um, friend and colleague, Trudy, one of our mentor teachers, like she brought this awesome, um, idea of like, brought this idea to me, like asking yourself why five times, if you can get, if you can ask yourself why five times then you're, you know, you're really getting at something. And I think I've, I've really taken that into my critical thinking, um, process and, also, I believe that children are critically thinking all the time. And so this key concept is what drives my intention 
And we talked about it before, uh, I think in the last podcast, that that I believe that children are are bringing an innate ability of understanding the world and, and they have a deep capacity for thinking. And to really help children capitalize on this, we educators and adults in their lives need to be willing to engage in tough conversations to really model critical thinking mm-hmm. out loud with them to to be to talk about the injustices that drive this world as a matter of fact and to use real information to back it up and i think if we use that the image of the child like they're confident they're capable mm-hmm. it's not a big topic for them it's it's they can understand it right yeah yeah and it's like you know when anybody's speaking real to you mm-hmm. they you feel it absolutely you know and i and i truly believe children know that as well and 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 it's also important and i encourage this for all adults again to not know and i truly believe there's value in not knowing and modeling that for children because frankly most of the time we do not know <laughs> we'll be right back hilltop children's center is a high quality preschool after school program and Professional Development Institute of Early Learning and Inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. All right, Nick. Reflective practice is kind of what we're known for at Hilltop. You've embodied that and you bring that reflective mindset to to everyone, no matter how short, how tall they are, you know, <laughs> the kids or adults. Um, it's cool to see how it spurs imagination, creativity, encouraging others. So what's the magic sauce, right? The the sauce you use to create the conditions in your classroom, in your life for reflective practice but specifically in regards to social activism. Yeah. Um, I think it's taking that first key element or key ingredient that we had just talked, touched on Mm. of critical thinking. Now critical thinking is sort of moot if you don't put it into action. (laughs) And the best way to really put it into action, action is to take up the other ingredient, which is honestly, I think having courage. Mm-hmm. which I think emerges in, in stages and in no particular order, I would say it's, you know, one, having courage to identify and live your values and to courageously engage other adults in the classroom to think about these and to share your own, their own, and basically get everyone on the same page. And two, taking action on that courage and engaging children in a, in a meaningful and relevant way. And three, have the courage to trust the children as thinkers, that they'll be able to think through and eventually make sense of the information. Uh, Also, I'm always thinking about the purpose of education, especially early childhood education. For me, I believe it's on one side, it's a means to perpetuate the norm, to maintain status quo. And on the other side of the matter, it can be a way to disrupt the status quo and to address the needs of the times to develop critical thinkers to help shape a more equitable and democratic society. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. You know, both sides of the the coin. Mm. Say a little bit more about that. 
<laughs> well, I, I think for a long time, education of all levels, preschool through college, let's say, um, has reflected the ideas and principles of one particular group, Caucasians, and, and of course, sprinkle in a little religious flair into that. <laughs> and somewhere along the line, this became synonymous in my perception with what it means to be, air quotes, American. Um, and the vast majority of us were taught about pilgrims, Western expansion, yeah. manifest destiny, and, and that all men were created equal. Yeah. But these were all, you know, superficial lessons come to find out as time moved on and, and with no, and these lessons had no regard to the lives and cultures lost, the impact on the environment and the nuances of who equality was actually meant for. White supremacy. Mm. And so, however, in recent times, I feel like there's been many great thinkers to giving voice to these injustices of the past. Um, you know, the cliche, you know, history repeats itself. <laughs> well, I'm going to get a little philosophical and, and kind of put food for thought on the table. is isn't so much that history is repeating, but the institutions that keep perpetuating it. Mm. And now there's a good amount of people on behalf of education saying, no, this isn't just and fair. This isn't accurate. This is enough. We're going to, we, and so we're going to reconfigure the pedagogy of the institution that is education. Mm -hmm. And this, this is the philosophical kind of part. This, uh, this concept is derived from structural functionalism framework um, by the social science thinker Talcott Parsons. So I'd encourage everybody to check him out. Damn. You, uh, you really do be reading all those books on your mantle. Uh, apparently each time you come together, you got a new philosopher you, you throwing down in these, in these chats. <laughs> I keep the brain going. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, man, I, I just think about children and, and children are the best, right? They're, mm -hmm. they are forever in awe of the world. And like you were saying, they ask so many questions. It's not just five wise it's you know some of the kids some of your toddlers be asking fifteen thousand. um <laughs> and at hilltop it's if a if a spicy topic like we like to call it such as um sexism homelessness racism whatever interest them the children and they bring it up where our, our, our mantra or mantra is not to be afraid and it's to engage in those difficult conversations with them in age-appropriate ways, right? Mm -hmm. And there's been a couple of times where adults, families, you know, guardians will sign off on it, right? Because we're up front right from the beginning. And they're like, yo, you talk about sex and so, oh, great. And then they become upset when we actually do start talking about it. You know, we start talking about being non-binary. We talk about, you know, child separation at the border, et cetera, et cetera, right? So how do you navigate these situations when adults, when guardians, when our, you know, our philosophy, which is very much forward thinking and socially conscious, right? That contrasts with what the parents, the guardians may believe in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, falling back on values. And like you said, we remind fam families, this is what we do. Mm. This is what our curriculum looks like. And, and, and maybe when it's putting the action into action and families see it, that's when they're kind of thrown for a loop and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and fortunately we've been able to pair it with emerging science on brain development. You know, and this, 
this stuff, all these isms, they're hard to talk about I mean, for everyone, no doubt. I mean, for myself included, I know many educators who are not going to just back down and stop addressing children's observations. Keeping the dialogue going is important for both families and educators. As the more we talk, the more is revealed. Um, I think intentions become clearer. And it also helps that we educators rely on each other to think through situations, to help find language that communicates our intentions and values, a common language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, fortunately, these instances don't come up too often. And the worst that I've seen it is that it's gone to the school's board in which the board basically told the family, <laughs> take it or leave it. You know, you do have a choice. Um, and I think it's important to, to reiterate that their children bring these up. Mm. Yes, there are times when educators want to acknowledge truths that are being erased from social consciousness, like indigenous land, yeah. black and Latino, Latina X history months. And, but when we take children out into the community and they ask, why is that person sleeping on the bench? Or even, is that Mike or Nick? Because they see a black or a brown man as educators as we can either a, take this opportunity to engage and expand their thinking or B, ignore or shun their thinking and possibly communicate that their observations and thinking are somehow wrong or unwanted. I think the view you have and, and one that we share is just that social activism is not social activism, social justice, whatever. It's not just an activity you do in the classroom, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of people think that siloed and it's only applicable there. You know, it's not just something that you just try to teach while you're at school. For me, it carries with me throughout my day. It, it's bringing, bringing to light the way white supremacy lives, oper- operates, um, infiltrates every fabric of our society. Yeah, and, you know, you're kind of, you just made me think that, like, this is a disposition. Mm-hmm. Right? Um. Lost my train of thought. <laughs> but uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's really helping people understand that. Um, you know, I like to think when people are always like, oh, what about gender? Well, it's also helping people understand that gender has a race component to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even more, it's about dismantling patriarchy and toxic masculinity in our society. You know, I personally live and breathe this because... You know, and it's it's heavy to think about, but I live and breathe this because my very existence as a black male depends on a white person not viewing me as a threat mm. or the police officer not using bias in their decision or bringing it back to school and preschool, you know, it's my teacher not sus- suspending me. So I don't know. Um, I wrote a blog on this. You know, that's on our that's on our website. Go check it out. Hilltop CC was a backslash institute. Was that a hyphen hyphen blog backslash alley? <laughs> right, <laughs> it's long, but um, I encourage y'all to go check it out. And what I said there was, you know, white people, y'all need to use your privilege to confront the racist employee at your supermarket, right? You need to use your power to set up structures, environments, and and conversations that highlight ways that we can thrive together in multiple learning environments. It's also using your resources to develop and support strategies to tackle this together with your administration, with your colleagues, with your district, with your community. 
you know, and more. So part of white people's job as a self-proclaimed anti-racist, social justice warrior, like there's many different names that you like to call yourself, but whatever you call it, part of your job is to interrupt racist moments. Hmm. It's not just something you do nine to five, right? In your job, you're nine to five. It's something you take out with you in your everyday life. But what I need is not what you need, Nick, you know? Mm -hmm. So can you speak on that a bit? Like, what does you, your family, your community need from white people? (laughs) And like, as I, as I told you, you know, when I was thinking on this, I had so many, so many thoughts Mm -hmm. and like, (laughs) this is, yeah, that's that's super weighted. So, you know, definitely going to just answer it from the heart. And mm. honestly, I think from my perspective and experience, the idea of this social justice hierarchy comes to mind. And a lot of times it feels like there's treatment of who has, has had or had it worse than one group of people or one group of people is in need of more saving or justice than another. And related to that, you know, keep in mind that not all people of color have the same or even similar stories. You know, this includes people who are of the same race. My story and perception of the world is is a lot different than my best friend Raul's. And we're both, we both identify as heterosexual Mexican-American men. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have totally different perceptions on what we need. And the same may be for you and your friends, Mike. Absolutely. Not all black people, you know, not all Afro-Caribbean has the same story. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not going to speak on behalf of, of others. Yeah. And, you know, that's that that aspect of maybe our ask of white people is to like, hey, listen to your individual, uh, your person who might be in your life that is of color. And, listen to their story. And believe them. Yeah. You know. And, and then also consider this for your, the children in your care too, especially Black, Indigenous, Latino, Latinx children, they they potentially bring family histories and stories deeply rooted in generational trauma. Mm-hmm. And this trauma informs how they might have been raised for generations. And But knowing this doesn't mean that they need saving. No. They are strong because of this. Use their stories and, and this trauma as a maybe as a springboard of strength that they are resilient and, and they're actually primed to be brilliant. Expect that out of them, you know, and take this into account of your, in your workplaces too, especially when you're seeking out ways to make things more equitable and inclusive. Uh, for example, there was an instance I know of when a white female colleague asked an American, Asian American woman who is a consultant and leader in the field, if we should hire a white or person of color facilitator for a project, and was advised to hire someone white, while an African American colleague thought that someone of color should have been hired. You know, well, you know, <laughs> that was me. <laughs> you know, um, but we knew that. Uh, yeah. And and honestly, to speak on that, it, it stems from the fact that we center whiteness in this work, right? We center it in education. We center it in early childhood education, and then. We center it in anti-racism work and equity and inclusion, DEI, right? Mm-hmm. And we assume that white people have a better understanding and knowledge of the effects of white supremacy than people of color, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is crazy, right? And But the thing is, white people often lack the, the accountability to buy, BIPOC, right? Black, indigenous, people of color. Because 
their lives don't depend on their lives don't depend on it, whereas ours does. You know, let me repeat that. Let me say this a different way. My life literally depends on white people not being racist. Mm -hmm. And I need a POC facilitator, right? Who who has that critical race analysis to help bolster white people's ability to interrupt racist moment. So I can continue to be alive. Yeah. And, and, you know, essentially I think, yeah, that goes, that does go along uh, when, when we're calling out the BIPOC group of people. Um, I mean, heck we already know the American Indians almost gone, mm. you know, and, and even, you know, my people are, I mean, there's still children in cages at the borders. Yeah. And a lot of that is rooted in the racism. And it's interesting that you, I, I like that point that you bring up. And I appreciate you, you know, calling <laughs> while I was trying to be anonymous with that story, but I appreciate you bringing some honesty to it. Um, there does seem to be this like thinking from some white people like, oh, well, my people created this mess and it's my job to clean it up. And so therefore we know how to clean it up. And I don't, you know, that's not entirely wrong and it's not entirely true. And the point is, is you're not going to do it right. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And don't beat yourself up over it. You know, that whole idea of white guilt instead of, you know, I would implore our white colleagues and friends and said, think about how you can step aside. So we people of color can be empowered to take the reins. You know, because anti-racism work isn't just about, isn't just about rectifying wrongs or anything like that. It's, it's a redistribution of the power. Mm-hmm. And it, if it's centralized in you and you're unwilling to give it up, then that just defeats the purpose. So, I don't know, man. I, I appreciate all this conversation, this good thinking, this the ability to record this, the ability to, to share our thoughts with, with others. And, and for you out there listening, to allow us to share that story and to to be open to listening to, you know, to male, edu- male educators of color, you know, and putting us on that platform and, and sharing this out. So, yeah. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Brother Nick, appreciate you. Hey, brother Mike, appreciate you. All right, man. Hey, hey, you know, still COVID, so we can't touch each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. You know, like I always say, or at least think about, it, we have one shot at being kiddos, right? Before the bills, before the drama before responsibilities. So let's make sure we give them a joyous one. Until next time, y'all. Take care.